Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Jen Fry, and I'm a Visioning Council member of the Organization of Nature Evolutionaries. I'd like to welcome you to our Becoming a Nature Evolutionary teleseminar series, where we delve deeply into what it means to be a nature evolutionary through dynamic explorations into consciousness raising that is at the core of one's vision of a world where people and nature are co-creative partners and all life has the right to thrive. Thank you to our members and donors for making possible today's teleseminar, tending the sacred and breaking the rules in hot mess times with Maeve McBride. Maeve McBride <laughs> is a climate justice organizer and writer. She is currently the fundraising director at the Global Eco Village Network and organizes with the No Coal, No Gas campaign, working to shutter the last coal-fired power plant in New England. For many years, Maeve was the director of 350 Vermont, which is an affiliate organization of 350.org, where she organized local, regional, and national actions and events. One of Maeve's current passions is reclaiming her family's farming roots by starting a small cooperative farm in Jericho, Vermont, where she and her family reside. Maeve also writes poetry, memoirs, and prose on the subject of grief, land connection, somatics, social justice, and God. You can find her writing on Patreon, um, and which her link is on our website, so you can find it there. Patreon.com, Mick MC, Maeve, M-A-E-V-E. -E. So thank you, Maeve, for joining us today. You can unmute. <laughs> oh. there, we go. there we go. There we go. Thank you, Jen. Thanks for thanks to April for originally inviting me to be here um, from your group, and um, thanks for that warm warm introduction. And I, um, yeah. Do you want me to that? Should yeah, I? Yes. Well, please introduce your uh, your land to us. Where are you coming from? Yeah, I, I uh, Jen asked how we should start uh, today, and I, I think it's always important to to honor the land and to honor the first peoples that have been on our land. So I would ask you all, no no matter where you're coming from, to maybe just pause for a moment, and um, hopefully you do know who the first peoples um, to be. To reside there are and if not I invite you to to make that discovery. Um, I am situated here uh, in the foothills of the Green Mountains um, in what is Abenaki Ab territory and uh, now known as Jericho, Vermont. I'm new to this little piece of land that we have, are now inhabiting and so uh, I feel like I'm still getting my roots. I went for a walk today um, and walking to me is a, a way to connect. So beginning to connect more and more with the plants and other occupants who have been here much, much longer than I have. Beautiful. <laughs> um, would you have um, some writing you'd like to share with us? Yeah, the other thing I thought we could start with today is, um, is a poem. Um, and I thought this one would be one that would might be appreciated by um, this audience of um, nature evolution uh, revolutionaries? evolutionaries evolutionaries both maybe both. how about that <laughs> yeah how about that all right i've titled it the flowers and the bees 
Intuition is a reclamation, especially for a scientist. Definitely for a white body stripped of culture, of magic, disembodied. Healing requires staying put. I'm reminded by the deer. Injured, she finds a quiet, hidden place by the water. A being normally alert, fast, agile, strong, must somehow calm her nature, quiet her instincts, and surrender either to death or rebirth. What does she notice when she's confined to her pocket glen? What to eat, where to birth, or maybe just a time to practice listening? A time for nearby saplings to be lulled and soothed by the vibration of her breath. So fantastical, you say? Let me tell you of the flowers longing for the hum of the bees. First, we planted a cardinal flower years ago in our backyard. Despite ample nursing, it died. So we thought. But a couple of growing seasons later, she reemerged, resituated to better conditions. A water-loving plant, she took root under the drip line of the roof in part shade, gravelly soil, and zone four. And this, next to the noisy sump pump that boisterously gushes with water, frequently and year-round keeping this basement dry in what was a wetland, subdued for now into houses, lawns, concrete. Curious, I thought. Cardinal flower, you like the sound of flowing water, don't you? Need the sound? In the wild, I've only seen you along the banks of streams, a solitary beacon of radiant red as I paddle by, worthy of a loving gasp. Perhaps the nursery should modify their directions. Part shade, gravelly soil, zone four, happiest within earshot of moving water, babbling brooks, or gurgling streams. And though I've abandoned science for mysticism, I find immense pleasure in some discoveries, the ones that belatedly confirm intuition, indigenous knowledge, traditions, e.g., Flowers respond to pollinator sound within minutes by increasing nectar sugar concentration. L. Haddeny et alia, 2019. Said differently, flowers love bees. Over generations, they've shaped their flowery bits to amplify the faintest distant buzz. When heard, they prepare themselves for the pleasurable exchange drawing up their sweetness to be smelled, sensed, augmenting their already attractively painted petals. Love me, they say. Come hither, handsome bee, and pick me. There ends the poem. Beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. I love the, um, well, the, there is that juxtaposition right now of intuition and science, right? Or there has been for a long time, but now more and more science is showing that that intuition or what we consider um, native wisdom is actually quite accurate. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so thanks yeah. for bringing that forward. Yeah.
Um, so Maeve, activism is such a part of your life. Um, I'm curious, like, where did this begin for you? What was your first, if you have a first memory of a calling, where did that start? Yeah, um, I, I think the activism and the connection to, um, to earth, to nature, uh, to the outdoors is, is both connected in, in my past. I grew up spending quite a bit of time uh, in the Adirondacks. Uh, my family had a, had a, has a camp there and on a little lake called Otter Lake. And when I grew up there, I heard lots of stories of the, my, my mom and her cousins all fishing in the lake and um, it kind of teeming with life. And when I was a little girl growing up there in the, you know, 80s, um, the, the lake had been impacted um, by two, two kind of catastrophic things. One was poor management by the, the local Department of Environmental Conservation. Uh, they actually poisoned the lake to try to stock it with trout. And then also there was acid rain, which was kind of the environmental problem du jour uh, when I was growing up. And um, I think that that, um, you know, from an early age was an experience of witnessing um, how problems way, way distant to myself could have a very direct impact on myself and the and my surroundings and the people and the and the beings around me. So I think that that was part of it. Um, I think also one of my around my coming of age time where there were many things that I vividly remember um, kind of following very closely in the news um, or being kind of an active participant in. Um, you know, the, the Berlin Wall coming down, um, the freeing of Nelson Mandela, these things were happening right around when I was coming of age and had a really big impact. And then my first activist um, action was was in high school um, with the first Gulf War. And I went to a public school um, in Troy, New York, an urban school, pretty big urban school. And um, the military recruiters, you know, came and were, um, you know, were frequently at the school, you know, recruiting people to sign up. And, and about the time that the Gulf War was starting, um, there was a conscientious objector who was some people, not myself, I wasn't organizing this, but some other people at the school tried to organize this conscientious, conscientious objector to come uh, and speak at the school and the school refused. And um, there was a walkout from the school and we walked to the closest to the university that was just across the street essentially. Um, and so that was the first time that I broke the rules, right? Um, goody two shoes here, you know, I was also valedictorian in my class, but I was gonna walk out for sure and um, knew that that was the right thing to do in that situation. And we got to hear this person speak at the, at one of the churches on campus. So um, yeah, that's a little bit of my, my background and my, the starting of my activism, I suppose. So 
I have similar background. So I'm laughing at the broke the rules and the goody two shoes because I definitely grew up in the same way. And um, uh, I think it's true in your life as well. But in my life, it's like uh, now what uh, what is considered to be the right thing to do or the legal thing to do, it seems to be in uh, consistent with what I consider to be actually the right thing to do for earth. And so often our, um, yeah, the, the being the goody two shoes just is not in alignment with what earth is, uh, is asking us to do. Um, I'm wondering if you have a similar experience or want to expand on that. Yeah. Um, What, the, what it brings to mind for me, you know, the whole concept, I guess, of goody tushes is making me think about mainstream and margin, right? right? This idea of um, there is mainstream culture, there is mainstream in, in a classroom. Um, and I think, um, at least when we're younger, coming, you know, thinking about coming of age and things like that, there is often, I think, or there wasn't me, I should say, I speak, speak, speak from the eye. I, at some times I had this desire to, you know, um, be of that um, mainstream and not be, not be outside, mm. be inside. And, and yet also in that time, I was coming to um, really value and see the gifts of being on the outside, right? Being outside of the school even, right? In that walkout. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I think there's a, when we think about societally, there's um, so much um, growth, evolution, change has come from the margins, whether that be along lines of race, along lines of class, along lines of um, whatever, however we have have marginalized or how our society marginalizes people and groups of people. Um, so yeah where where should i where was i going with this um (laughs) but um so yeah that breaking the rules i think is really important um when we when we realize that, you know, that, that the mainstream is, is not where, where we need, where one individual needs to be or where we need to be perhaps. Mm -hmm. Um, When the mainstream is out of alignment with nature. Yeah. Yeah. Out of alignment with nature, out of alignment with humanity, um, out of alignment with, um, yeah. So in so many ways, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So do you still, um, do you, are you, so have you gotten out of that situation of like, oh no, I'm going to break the rules and now you just embrace it. Or do you ever still come up with a fear of like, oh, I don't want to, you know, this isn't what I should be doing. Um, as far as legally, <laughs> um, <laughs> not that I want you, sorry, let's like, um, but you know, like, so for instance, there, uh, well, yeah, with a lot of the activism work and the protesting, it's not technically, um, it is breaking the rules. So do you have, are you comfortable in that zone now? Or are there things that you can do to encourage 
to allow yourself to be more comfortable or that you would offer to other people who find themselves uncomfortable in those roles? Yeah, I mean, I um, breaking the rules is a, is a tricky, tricky subject. Um, <laughs> you know, it's in, in activism situations for me, it's been one in which uh, because of the privileges or the, the way that I, um, my identity, my particular identities of being white, of being relatively high educated and um, coming from middle class or even upper middle class, I am pretty protected by the systems, right? Mm -hmm. So for me to break the rules and, you know, block an oil train, um, is a lot different from someone else. Um, so I, I just want to acknowledge that, 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 um, layer of privilege around breaking mm -hmm. the rules. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, and I think that's a little bit of a, a tricky thing too, around, um, I may, I may be breaking, um, the law when I when I blocked that oil train, for example. Um, but what I need to be accountable, uh, very much so to many different things, I need to be accountable to the local community, I need to be accountable to um, to my family, I need to be accountable to God, I need to be accountable to my activism community. All of these responsibilities and accountabilities are what um, to me are really important, um, you know, when we're, th when we th we're thinking about doing um, a direct action or, or, or breaking the rules, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so, um, That's something to think about. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So one of the things that is, this is a total change of subject here, um, but in your writing, uh, you shared an article with us, uh, which is on our website. Um, and you talk about grief and climate change and anticipatory grief. So what you wrote actually, is, you were talking about ice skating um, and ice skating at the end of spring or the beginning of spring, end of winter. Mm -hmm. And you said, on a meta level, I noticed that I feel this way each spring since I fixed my gaze on the climate crisis. Anticipatory grief perhaps, knowing that at some point this turn of season will mark the last. Is this the last time? Will the ice return next year? How many more winters can we expect? And um, one, I just wanted to say, I thought that was really beautiful <laughs> um, and moving. So thank you for that. But also I think that is um, a place where so many of us are sitting now in this um, holding the grief and the hope at the same time and uh, and I'm just being reminded of all these tornadoes that we just, that just occurred, you know? And so it's like, um, with everything that's happening with climate change, we can't just focus on one thing. It's, you know, all around and on the many different ways in which our lives are affected. So um, how do you hold that? 
Yeah. Um, well, this is where I think that the intersection for me of, um, of being really involved in the uh, climate crisis and in the, the resistance um, around the fossil fuel industry uh, overlaps with tending the sacred because, um, yeah, to, to work day in and day out, and, and I think more and more of us, even if we aren't um, working in the field of climate crisis in some way, we're we, more and more we are, all of us, um, seeing, feeling, um, aware of these catastrophes that are, that are fueled by, by the climate crisis. Um, and there's so much grief um, and there's so much uncertainty. You know, I, I think that um, we don't know how this human project, uh, human experiment's going to turn out. Um, it may not end well, uh, or it may not end um, gracefully. Mm -hmm. um, and so I found uh, in doing that work that I, that I had to, that I didn't, I had to, and it didn't, it's not like something I um, necessarily put my mind to do, but it kind of happened organically in that I uh, started just finding awe in unexpected places and finding connection, connection to nature in unexpected places. So one that I shared um, actually in some pre-dialogue I did about this conversation with my friends online was uh, this one morning and actually this sun coming in is reminding me of it this one morning before work I had my coffee cup on the counter and the steam was billowing up out of it and the sun was low it must have been this kind of season because the way the light was coming through the steam the steam was just gorgeous you know and it had these um, twirls and like the movement of it and um, billowing and and it just transfixed me for a moment and I just kind of stared at it and um, you know even as like something as simple as that uh, I was able to be struck with awe and like and in a, in a place of being really grateful um, or the, you know, why is it that the steam looks like that? The physics of it, the turbulence, all of those things. Being a scientist, that's, that comes to mind when I, when I looked at it. And um, so I think, so that to me, like, is necessary to balance um, the, the heaviness and the grief and the loss that I was fixing my gaze at every day. Um, so uh, yeah, that's a little bit why I wanted to put these two things together in the conversation today. Yeah. 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 I'm guessing um, if this is your work, well, this is your work, then you don't get to take a break or hide your head in the sand a little bit. Um, so even more important for you to be focusing on, because um, burnout's a real deal, right? So focusing mm -hmm. on how to, to find that awe. I, I agree with you. That's, you know, one of the things that balances it for me too, is the awe and the beauty that even in, um, so even when you were talking about the, the lake and how it was poisoned and the acid rain was going, um, 
Pam, one of our, our founder, Pam Montgomery, she talks about the Hudson River. And there's, there was this natural turning away from that I think so often happens to us when we find out, you know, there's a super fun site here or this, this water is poisoned. Mm -hmm. We want to turn away from it because it's ill. We don't want to be associated with it, mm -hmm. but there's still beauty there and, and it's still there and it still has a right to thrive. So if we can turn and find that beauty, even in these, um, these poisoned waters, um, then that helps us to still connect. And, and that's really where the healing is mm -hmm. that occurs. Um, yeah. yeah, indeed. And I think, that, you know, our hands, we are the hands of God, we are the hands of the divine. So and we're so needed to to do that restoration work to do that healing work. Um, I didn't get to go, but some of my friends and colleagues in activism went to the Tar Sands Healing Walk many mm -hmm. years ago, where they um, walked around in Alberta around these, you know, just, I mean, it, it's, um, it seems otherworldly and the descriptions that they had of, you know, stepping off the plane and, and, you know, breathing in um, the fumes and, um, and yet still they walked, you know, they walked and they said prayers and they brought the sweet grass. Um, and speaking of sweet grass, your, the words you were just sharing reminded me um, so much of, uh, you know, the, pivotal work of Robin Wall Kimmerer mm -hmm. and braiding sweetgrass and how, how hugely important I think that is for um, especially uh, culture, you know, white folks and folks culturally who are coming from a place of a real separation of um, human and nature and a, and a domination lineage, right? Uh, this idea of, um, um, domination over nature and there's so much healing and, and I think from domination we've in some ways swung to the opposite side of the pendulum around oh well we can't you know we must stay away like we have to preserve these lands and and conserve them and I think what um, we can learn so much from traditional um, peoples everywhere that they are not just in North America is that um, reciprocal relationship and the, um, the exchange that, that we are a part of, that we need to be a part of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, oh, there is a question there. Okay, well, <laughs> it might come back. Um, oh no, it's not a question. I was just thinking when you're giving the image of uh, your colleagues walking in the tar sands and I'm just feeling like such bravery. It takes such bravery to look at the destruction and still hold um, that connection with nature and, and still hold your own center. Um, so while you weren't there, I know you do experience this probably pretty regularly. So um, what is it uh, that helps give you that bravery or do you not feel that? I mean, I'm, I'm just making an assumption that you feel it, but from, I'm witnessing it. So um, I'm curious. Yeah. Um, well, let me share a story that's my own to tell. And um, it's the when I was preparing to um, to do the action where we stopped the oil train. And this was in Albany, New York, a few years ago. And uh, 
we were scouting out the site, uh, which you often do. And I find that whatever I'm doing, whether it's a breaking the rules kind of an action, or if it's just a speaking action that I, I have to, I have to go ahead of time and, um, walk, walk the land, meet the beings in some, in some way, um, to, to feel at all. Like I have any authority to do anything in that place, uh, or not authority. That's not even the right way. The, an invitation perhaps seeking an invitation um to 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 do something in a place that i'm not connect connected to um so anyway we we went to this and it was a railroad bridge over a uh, over a reservoir actually the re the beginning of a reservoir in the at the, the outlet of a reservoir and we went at night and um you know we were scouting where we would where we would kind of hide out before the action and um, where we would attach ourselves. This was an, an action where we were um, attached by rope to the, to the train tracks. So that if the train um, came by, the rope would be severed. And so, um, you know, pretty high stakes action. So we really had to spend, spend time and plan it safely. And that evening that we were out there it was it was a early summer late spring evening um the it was just a beautiful night and the peepers were sounding and um, these ravens were calling in the distance and i feel like those sounds and those creatures there were um in some way inspiring me, in some way inviting me to, to do this action. Um, it's near where I grew up anyway, since I, I grew up in Troy, New York, just across the Hudson River actually. And um, so I did have a very uh, rooted sense of uh, a desire to prevent the kind of catastrophes that can happen when we're carrying highly volatile fuels on train tracks over bodies of water that are people's drinking water. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, that's an example, I guess, maybe of, of where that connection to nature and um, propelled or gave me some um, sense of uh, helped the courage, perhaps, mm -hmm. to be able to, to do an action like that. Yeah. Yeah. Or not yeah. even courage. I don't know if I would call it courage. It wasn't courage so much as just I'm in the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's for me um, what I'm willing to to go into um, more risky situations. But I and I told my colleagues, too, at this action, like I'm, I'm willing to do this. And I'm also having to hold that I might say no at any time. Uh, might need to say no. And I really felt like I was guided in that moment um, and through that action um, to do to do what I did. And um, yeah. That's great. Um, yeah, one of the things that you said that I think is so important is that invitation. Um, because, you know, we can, we can, we can have the best of intentions, but we can still put uh, our desires or our what we think is best over top of nature. And if it's not that um, 
partnership, if we're not being invited into this, it might not, what we're thinking is right might not be true. Um, so thank you. That's lovely. Uh, being invited and walking the land. Um, are there any other uh, rituals or anything that you do to foster your connection, um, whether for an action or in your daily life or anything you would offer to our listeners about connecting? Hmm. Yeah, I, um, I, I love to spend time outside. We all probably do. I imagine the people that are listening to this. Um, but I try to practice not just being outside, but really, um, bringing my loving presence into the places that I'm at. And there's this lovely um, guided meditation um, that I've, I've led and, and have been led in. And that is one of a loving gaze. Mm -hmm. And it's um, this idea of um, gazing upon whatever it might be, a tree or a bird, and um, really energetically in a way sending your love to to that being um and i you know i i that's so i that's one practice that i do um and i think my practices also have evolved a lot over time um you know it's kind of like i was saying with the actions um keep keep moving forward and keep questioning um, where I'm at and if it's a yes or if it's a no, if it's a maybe. Uh, same thing with my, my spiritual practices. Um, they've changed. They've gone through eras, different chapters. Um, and so just, but keeping, keeping on that seeking path has, uh, has been important in my, or has been what my journey has been about, I guess. Um, And I think however, however we can do that, connecting to something that's greater than yourself. So I do it a lot of different ways. I, I have a church that I go to. I, um, I try to have a daily meditation, prayer practice, um, love to, to sit outside. Um, and yeah, so it's varied and it's changing, um, but it's always, in a in a in a desire to connect to that which is greater than all of us mm -hmm. yeah yeah so as you're talking it sounds like um you very much need to pay attention to what's going on for you and trusting your i mean just full circle to how you started this but trusting your intuition so, um, you know, if it feels right to you, then it's yes. And if it does not feel right and it can change. So also, you know, being open to that as well, which is good because sometimes we get, we get stuck in the, the yes, and we don't feel like there's an out, but we always, if we don't have that out, then it's not really free will. So, um, and it's also not safe for everybody. So it's important to keep that, um, in mind, um, so that brings me to uh, like, what does make activism sacred or, 
or is there is it possible to have like unsacred activism or um so i'm just curious if you have any thoughts yeah um well you know i think i feel like i witnessed a, a change at least in the circles that i've been active in um regarding this this idea of sacred activism it to me, my experience has been that it's since Standing Rock, mm -hmm. um, where I, I did not attend, but my, my partner did and many friends did, uh, that pivotal moment really, I think, created a bit of an opening around, uh, at least for white folks, mm -hmm. um, this opening to sacred activism a little bit more. Um, I think it's really challenging in our culture that is um, so diverse and also has such also Christian hegemony that uh, when we, when I as an organizer have wanted to have a, a lens, a, a sacred lens to the, act, the actions that I was helping to organize and create. Uh, it's it's uh, it's really challenging to do that um, in a way that uh, kind of respects all of the different places that people may be coming from in terms uh, of their spirituality and or of their religion. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I, I think that it's also something that I have found is a, there's a real need and desire for as well. Um, so with the climate walk um, that, I that I helped organize with many people, a five-day walk that we did in Vermont, both to... Um, acknowledge the the injustice the the loss of a natural or natural and fracked gas pipeline uh, being built in vermont um, in in this time uh, and and also it was a it was a walk to to bring a demand to our to our leaders in montpelier so we started in middlebury we followed part of the the pipeline path, and then we we completed in Montpelier, the capital of Vermont, and that um, that was in 2019. So this was a couple of years after Standing Rock, and we were able to have um, kind of a, a team that were the sacred holders of of that five day action. And they came from different um, backgrounds, different traditions, different spiritual traditions. And I, I think we were able to, to, to do that in a, a way that was invitational to people to, to participate, that wasn't um, exclusionary, like didn't, that there was always an option to pass or to not, to not you know, attend the, the spiritual um, the more the more sacred kind of content um, we did a grief ceremony on on the Sunday um, of the walk 
So that was quite beautiful. Uh, so yeah, I think there, you know, I think it's, it's, um, it's a learning edge for our movement, I believe. And, and for, I, I, and I think for our culture too, honestly, um, I really feel that we are going to have to thrive as humans if we're going to survive. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that we're not, that many of us don't thrive around is our spiritual bodies. Mm -hmm. um, I know that was, that's been my, my tr part of my truth, having been raised agnostic and atheist um, and really having to find how important a spiritual life was for me and that, that I am a spiritual being. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if you know this, but one of the main reasons why one is actually in creation is because um, we felt that the spirit was lacking from the environmental movement. Mm. Um, and, and part of the spirit is yes, partly what you're talking about as far as prayer and, you know, ritual or ceremony, but the other part is actually recognizing that we're working with an intelligent earth, that the beings, you know, have their own um, intelligence and their own um, ability to want to participate or not participate. And we need to be working in community and in co-creative partnership with them in order to create our future or else it's just going to be like what I talked about earlier, where I call it um, human-splaining where, you know, like the humans, we just, we just create whatever it is we want to. And it, it could be just as bad as not, um, as poisoning the waters, you know, it could be mm -hmm. just as bad or is just as dangerous. So that's why we, um, one of the main reasons why we created this was to bring this, the spiritual recognizing the intelligence of nature in along with the environmental movement. Um, and it's been an interesting cause we've been around for eight years now. Um, and, uh, yeah, like there, we've tried to work with some pretty big environmental movements. And as soon as we mentioned spirit or sacred earth activism, they are like, nope, we don't want to do this. You know, we want the science. Um, and so again, it goes back to, uh, your poem and that, uh, um, now I just lost the word. It starts with an I, but, um, intuition, intuition. <laughs> great, great mm -hmm. word to lose, um, <laughs> but you know, it starts with the intuition. And again, it is what now that science, like we are, we're seeing it too, that more of the environmental movement. Um, I think you're right. I think standing rock was a very pivotal moment because it showed how prayer is so powerful and, um, and also helps us to remain peaceful and, um, and it just shows the juxtaposition of the extremes that the oil and gas industries are willing to go to, to keep their dollars going. Um, so I think that was pivotal. And, I, and also all the other science work that's coming out that's showing the indigenous knowledge. And, um, and there is, I mean, you mentioned Robin Mall Kimmer. She's definitely been a great um, cultural change bringer there that more and more people are willing to have this conversation. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so thank you for particularly for bringing that to the 350 um, Vermont movement because um, it is, it's so important. Um, yeah, so I'll say. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm, so I'm curious, have you, uh, 
you said that you were giving people an out, but did you feel that it um, benefited the the movement to to bring the the prayers in and the ceremonies in? Um, was there pushback against it? Um, yeah, I I mean I think that most of the the stories and the feedback and what people shared with me was um, how. Uh, how moving that was. I mean, we had one legislator who said, you know, that when we did the final action in the state house, which was also, um, it wasn't quite prayer, but it was song mm -hmm. and it was silence um, combined in, in, a, in a sacred way, I would say, and how it was the most moving thing that they had ever, they had ever witnessed in there, you know. A most powerful, and there are a lot of there are a lot of demonstrations that happen certainly inside of the state house. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think that so many of the the aspects of that walk were were you know sacred without being a capital S sacred mm -hmm. or capital S spirituality. You know, mm -hmm. um, we did have we did have some ceremonies, but then the the whole um, the whole five days uh, was, I would say, led by by people who have deep spiritual commitments themselves, mm -hmm. and so that just infuses the whole thing, mm -hmm. um, and and the just the 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 way that we were together, you know, actually walking the land um, for for you know. 15 to 20 miles a day, um, the eating together in community, the sleeping in community on church basement floors, you know, all of those things. Um, again, to me, it's kind of like getting back to the way this like true humanity, right? Like mm -hmm. we weren't, we weren't actually built um, to be Little fam, little tiny families, or individuals, or even couples in mm -hmm. in a house separated from everybody else. It's not mm -hmm. how humans use, you know. It's not how we were made. Right. So, so to me, that's those part of the sacredness too of of that whole walk, um, providing. And I, I see those opportunities as a as a, a window. Um, and gives people a taste of what liberation could look like, what a, mm -hmm. what a different kind of future could look like. Mm -hmm. um, one that's more connected to each other, to the land, one that's more, where the sacred, where, where spiritual practices are woven in more mm -hmm. um, into daily life. Yeah. Yeah, so I actually was at Standing Rock and I um, participated with the medic and herbalist uh, council. And so that to me is what I hold in as when you say what, what this could look like for me. I mean, it was such an interesting place to be because on one hand you had like horrible atrocities going on. Um, and at the, at the same time, you had this incredible community of people that came from all around to work together um, for a set goal and to support one another in any way that they could. And um, I, you know, I have a healing practice in my professional life. And so here was like my dream healing practice where 
anybody could show up and say what their ailment was and have a circle of people say, okay, well, I can offer this or I can offer this. And, um, and it was totally free. Uh, I mean, of course it was also people volunteering and lots of people donating lots of herbs and medicines. And, but it was, it definitely, I think that for me, that was one of the most powerful parts of Standing Rock. And, um, and I can hear it in, in um, this, the Vermont walk too, is what we can offer like that, that we can see this community and we can see another way because so often in our everyday life, we can't see another way of being other than the capitalism and even the white supremacy and the patriarchy. You know, like it's so hard to get a glimpse of what life could be without that. Um, yeah, so I could see that would be a very powerful experience to have. Are you muted? <laughs> okay. Ah, I just muted you again. There, I think. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I muted myself because there was a very loud vehicle going down the road when you were speaking. So. Yes. Um, yeah, that, yeah, that's wonderful. Great to hear your story of you being at Standing Rock and yeah, those little glimpse of, glimpses of how, how we could create something different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I'm just thinking that these, the activism and these moments are absolutely powerful for getting awareness to, you know, ending pollution or ending this, but they're also, particularly when it's held in that sacred earth activism, they also are giving us a hope for a future and teaching us, um, teaching us how we can live in harmony together. Um, reminding us that that is a longing that we have. Mm -hmm. um, that's what yeah. I hear when I hear you talk about everybody sleeping on the floor in the church. <laughs> you know, I'm sure it's not something that people long to to sleep on the floor of a church, but but being in community um, is, you know, it fills that for us and gives us that propels us forward. Yeah, and 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 can be transformational. You know, I think that that. I mean, I don't know the stories of everyone that that came along on the walk, but I know a couple of them. And I can say that I think it was a transformational um, experience for some people and they went on to be much, much more active um, in the resistance to the fossil fuel industry. Um, and, and some of what flowed out of that uh, walk too was, which I should mention the, the no coal, no gas uh, campaign, which, um, in the Northeast, at least, I, I know there may be people listening in from all over, but in the Northeast, um, this is an ongoing campaign to close the last uh, coal-fired power plant. And um, I also want to share that there are three goals for that campaign. And it starts, the first goal starts with building community. Mm. And then the second goal is to uh, how do we how do we phrase this again? I'm not coming up with the exact words, but essentially how to be more more bold together, mm -hmm. um, what, expand what's possible, kind mm -hmm. of a goal. Um, and then the third is to shut the plant, but <laughs> the that those first two come come first mm -hmm. um, is it's intentional that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, that's great. Um, if anybody else has anything you would like to ask Maeve, please either raise your hand or put it in the chat box. 
Um, but I love that you have those two goals first. That's not something we normally think of um, in the yeah, environmental movement. So that's wonderful. Thank you, Maeve, for joining us today. And thank you to all of you who are listening. Um, if you would like to read more of Maeve's writings, you can find them on her Patreon account, which again, there's a link on our website, natureevolutionaries.com. And you can also follow her work at nocoalnogas.com. Um, while visiting our website, well, first of all, you can find all of our other teleseminars on our uh, website and as well as at your uh, favorite podcast station, so Apple, Spotify. Um, but while visiting our website, I do ask you to please press the donate button. We are in the middle of our big annual fundraising drive and your donations help us to continue to do our work of creating educational opportunities and listening to and building relationships with the living earth. Because it is our annual drive, for anyone who donates until December 31st, you are automatically in, uh, registered, uh, entered, that's the word, entered into our raffle to receive a beautiful curated ceremonial kit, um, which will have that drawing in the beginning of January. And our big news that I keep announcing for the past several months, and now I can finally tell you what that is, is that we have a really incredible summit that we are going to be offering in April, April 21st to the 24th. It's Women Working for the Earth Summit, Restoring Our Relationship with Nature. And our, tell us, our keynote speakers are Leah Penniman, Linda Black Elk, Winona LaDuke, Terry Tempest Williams and Rosemary Gladstar. And they will be joined by an incredible array of amazing women from across this globe who are really dedicated to bringing in um, a better world and working for earth and for uh, a place where all of nature, all including humanity thrives and has the right to life. So please join us for that. Mark it on your calendars. Stay tuned for hearing all of our upcoming news around it. And um, until next time, I wish you um, those moments of awe that can carry us through during these hot mess times. Uh, may you find peace in your days and may we breathe and dream together. Have a beautiful day. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>